Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This presentation of In Their Own Words is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. The invasion of Europe was the largest challenge facing the United States in World War II. But before the invasion fleet headed towards the beaches, hundreds of troops were transported behind enemy lines. As it had been in the invasions of Italy and North Africa before, the gliders, developed by the Allies, would transport most of the troops destined to lead the fight into harm's way. While they might be preferable to a parachute jump, gliders were fraught with their own set of risks. Flimsily constructed of wood and canvas, these unpowered and unarmed planes fell like a stone and had the flight characteristics of an airborne freighter. Many of them would meet their demise at the hands of German anti-aircraft gunners or piled up against a hedgerow or glider trap as they slid to a deadly stop in the fields of Normandy. But some got through and the brave men who flew them made all the difference on D-Day. William Horn was comfortably ensconced in his job at Shell Oil when his nation called for him. He was draft exempt but like so many men of his generation, he heeded that call by joining the Army as a glider pilot at the age of 31. I had no idea about any of it. Uh, and I, I didn't learn about it until I got in and got involved and it was too late. But a, a curious thing happened on the way to the forum. Uh, they did a tremendous selling job through the army to get guys to volunteer for glider pilot training. They could find very few uh, uh, people with any glider experience when they started the program. So consequently, they signed up about 30,000 trainees. They didn't have any gliders for them to fly, and they put them in pools to go through basic training, uh, countless hours of looking at instructional movies and things of this sort, and it got to be a morale problem. And then all of a sudden, they got the CG4A in production, and they got the school set up, and they got a flow started. They would graduate graduate in the early schools at Victorville, Stuttgart, Arkansas, and Dalhart, Texas, uh, classes of 100 or 200 about every two weeks. So they said, well, we're never going to get all these guys trained. So in the early spring of uh, 1943, the Army, did, the Air Force, when I say Air Force, we're talking about the Air Corps, but it was really the Air Force at that time because this designation was changed in 1941. But they suddenly realized, what are we going to do with all these guys? They're sitting around at all these bases and all of them screaming and it's a morale problem. So they put on a big screening job with all the places where they had glider pilot trainees waiting. And in they gave them an opportunity to transfer back to their original branch of service if they wanted to, or if they wanted to uh, transfer to cadet training and were qualified physically or navigation bombardier, they could do that. 
or the, the, the other case was you could remain uh, and indicate that you wanted to pursue the glider pilot training program. Well, this is the first time I've ever heard of in, in warfare where guys were offered a discharge to go home because if you volunteered, had volunteered for the glider pilot program itself and they admitted they couldn't complete your training, you could take a discharge and go home. Uh, two guys that entered with me in my in my little flight class of eight, two the two of them went back to civilian life and were never never re-entered the service. Now that cut the program down considerably, and they were able to get on a a trend of a normal graduation rate to take care of the people. We went through uh, what they call dead strict training with flight light planes would cut the motor, stop the prop, do a do a, a landing from five or six thousand feet, doing certain maneuvers on the way down and land on a spot. Uh, and then we went into the, the little three-place gliders. Somebody got the bright idea, well, we don't have enough training gliders. We'll make gliders out of light aircraft. So they took the J3 Cub, uh, the Taylorcraft L2, and uh, the Aronca, removed the engine, put a third seat in front and made a three-place glider out of it. Uh, this was very good training for all of us because it gave us our first feel of a tow rope. Handling a tow rope is just like skiing with, on, on the water. You have to keep tautness in the rope. If you're starting to get slack, you're getting into trouble. So you maneuver where you can to keep that certain tautness in the rope and keep it in a certain position. So this was valuable training, but these later guys that came through never did, never did get get advantage of this. That continued on, on through about uh, the early fall of 1944. This is shortly after the Holland mission. We put 1,899 CG-4A gliders into Holland over about a five-day period. None of them had co-pilots, the one pilot, and the Airborne didn't like this at all because they were completely at the mercy of that one pilot. And uh, so the Air Force said, we've made a mistake, we're gonna have to have more trainees. So what they did, uh, they created another morale problem. They went to the cadet program and the newly graduated cadets that graduated from twin engine school and those that graduated from single engine school looking forward to being a P-47 or a P-51 pilot next week, they sent them all to glider school. And they all had to go through and be qualified as a glider pilot. And this gave us the tremendous backlog of people. They were, they were excellent flyers, but they were poor, poorly trained in ground combat. So that's kind of the way the program went. It was, we always said it's, uh, it's a new day every Monday. <laughs> They came out with a new program every Monday. <laughs> but it was a very successful program and it, uh, it was a tough job. It wasn't any tougher than a lot of other jobs in World War II, but it happened to be our job. And uh, for my part, I think we did, uh, we did well at it. But flying the gliders was only half the mission. The tactics for their use had evolved very slowly and were only beginning to take shape. The Airborne had no conception of what they wanted. Hap Arnold, the Air Force General of the Air, uh, it was really the father of the CG-4A, not the Airborne. Uh, 
Arnold said, give me a ship that will carry a Jeep, or give me a Jeep with wings, is the way he first put it. And this is what evolved down uh, the, the, uh, uh, the CG-4A. We had a what we call a CG-3. Uh, the A means the first model for production. Uh, we had a CG-3, a prototype that was a um, eight or nine passenger all everybody sitting on a bench in the middle in tandem, but it had no cargo carrying capacity. It could carry troops, and that was it. And this was this was mainly an afterthought of the of the German DFS 230 that captured that fort in Belgium and kind of opened up the knowledge of what airborne operations could be. That uh, big ship right there, uh, since we didn't have helicopters in World War II was the answer to the airborne because um, it's like I explained to a lot of people that 75 millimeter howitzer you're sitting over there, uh, it has to be uh, packed into five separate uh, cartons, packs, to be dropped from a C-47 at whatever altitude, either with parachute or just drop it. And uh, they will usually drop from 700 feet or 800 feet in that area, and you drop that at uh, 120 or 130 miles an hour, when it hits the ground, they're gonna be scattered out for a mile. And the airborne, you remember, the only thing that they've got to protect themselves with is what they can carry on their backs. Small arms, they going into a heavily infested area with uh, enemy area with tanks, heavy artillery, all kinds of mobile equipment, and they've got to they've got to take this area with with rifles and carbines and pistols. Their initial life was probably about four hours, and that was not enough because their survival depended on immediate leak up a link up being made with the supply source. So this bird gave them the capabilities of carrying that. We could carry that that 75 millimeter in not in the packs, but fully assembled. And if required, that gun could be rolled out in action in, in, in two or three minutes because you would carry a startup crew, you'd carry startup ammunition, and when it hit the ground, it was ready to fire if it needed. And of course, we carried the 105 millimeter and we carried the 37 millimeter anti-tank gun. So this gives them uh, probably eight to ten more hours of survival time and was the difference between most all the airborne missions in World War II. I don't know if the airborne would, would admit to this, but uh, that's the way it was. The question for men who flew the gliders was how to land with no power and all that heavy equipment. You've got to remember that the aircraft was, that was designed to crash. It's the only aircraft in the history of the Air Force was designed to crash, and it did. We only recovered about 25% uh, uh, of gliders in the ETO, where most of them were committed for combat, uh, not because of structural failure, but because uh, uh, we'd wreck them when we landed them. Uh, you know, if you, if, you were, if you saw you were gonna hit a tree or something, you didn't mind sticking that wing down into the ground and ground looping, and, tearing up the whole glider or washing out the gear, it didn't matter. They wrote that glider off when you took off. And they also wrote the pilots off. The glider infantry that we carried were the guys that really had the guts because they went into that glider without any parachutes on. And so did we. 
because there was no way we were going to jump out of that glider and leave those guys up there, not with them sitting up back there with their Tommy guns aimed at us. So those guys were the, I think this should have had a G on their wings also. And uh, uh, it, 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 it proved out in, in, many, in many cases that, uh, that those guys were the courageous guys. I never knew of a, they've got to go in there and sit down without a parachute and, and now they're trained to be airborne. They may, they may not be parachute qualified. But that's their goal to become parachute qualified. So they're going in there and they have nothing to save themselves with. The paratrooper getting up in the C-47 or something, he's got a parachute on. He knows if something happens to that ship, if it drops a wing or whatever, he can bail out. He's got a lifeline. These poor guys didn't have a lifeline except for that glider pilot sitting up there in the front of the glider. And most of us took that pretty seriously. We, we felt responsible for those guys back there. We were going to get them down as safe as safely as we could, unless we couldn't do it. That's what made it so hard in Holland to go in with uh, 14 troopers and one, one pilot. And you, you had to try on a flight in of maybe three or four hours, try to tell this guy sitting next to you how to land that glider if something happened to you. And he'd never been up in an airplane before. So that's the kind of uh, faith they were looking, looking to, and that's why I call them the, the bravest guys in the, in the sky. I always have had a high respect for them. Once the training was complete and the mission scheduled, it was time to mount up and take to the skies. We took off from a base near, uh, near Paris, France. Our, our particular group and formed up into echelons of, I think, uh, about four planes to the right or left. Well, this was the only mission we ever flew where the C-47s carried two, two gliders, double tow. And, and we, were, we were scheduled to go into what it was called a landing zone, landing zone S, which is about five miles beyond the Rhine River. We'd just taken off from our field, which uh, uh, was, near, was near the oily airport in France, and we were assembling, getting together. And there was a glider that was about uh, about five flights ahead of me that I was watching for some reason. And all of a sudden, I see, I see him wiggle his wings, and he hit the release and cut off and started a slow dive like this. Well, what had happened, the long toe and the short toe rope had gotten mixed up with his tail surfaces. He lost complete control. Uh, we had a 350-foot tow rope on each glider, and then we had on the long tow, we had an additional 75-foot link that put us, so if we got like this, we were theoretically about 25 feet behind the other glider. But when you get the tail surface, this is a tow rope coming back here through those tail surfaces, you can see how fragile it is. Anything, any kind of a force will just tear them up. And this, this guy went in just like this from from about 3,000 feet, and he got down about 500 feet off the ground, and the glider just flipped like that. Both wingtips just kind of exploded, and the next instant he hit the ground. He had a load of high explosive ammunition, and uh, about six troopers in that glider. Uh, I talked to some of the medics when I got back to the base, and they said the only thing that they found when they got there, they found one hand from some person back in 
the back of the glider hanging onto some of the steel tubing, and that was all that was left of the whole crew. That was about uh, seven or eight guys gone just like that. Uh, we had a train of aircraft. Once we got in, in route and joined up with other groups from other sections of France, uh, that took about five and a half hours to pass one point. If you were sitting out there looking up, you'd sit there five and a half hours and watch that continuous uh, four-plane element go over one just continuously. It's, 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 it's awesome because most people can't visualize that. Even today, I find it strange that we had that much equipment and that much people and that much airplanes to put in the air. Well, we got close. I had, by the way, I had one of those qualified power pilots as a co-pilot with me. And uh, he spelled me off and did a very good job. The only problem is he, he, didn't, know, he didn't know from beans about uh, combat. He'd never been trained other than just basic Air Force training. See, we were qualified on every weapon that the Airborne had. We were qualified to fire it and operate it, uh, from the artillery down to the, the pea shooter. So when we got close to the Rhine River, big S out there by Wessel, and there's uh, fog, smoke, or something down there, we couldn't see the ground. We got across the river, we got to our landing zone. A tow pilot, would, by navigation, would give us a green light when we were near or, or at the designated LZ. Uh, we had about a minute to cut off. If he gave us a red light, then he had the provision and the permission to cut us off himself. But that, that never happened because it was a court-martial offense to cut that glider off unless you had a damn good reason for it. So when we got over our LZ and into, into Germany, with the aircraft stacking up, I was at, I was at about, I was better than 2,000 feet altitude and I should have been at 600 feet. And when I cut off, there was nothing down there but ground, uh, smoke. I couldn't see the ground. And uh, so we just flew a pattern by instinct and, and estimate about where we should make a turn. We were going to make a 180-degree turn and come into the wind and land in this particular spot. It was probably about two or 300-acre area, open flat fields, plowed fields, and pastures. So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like the experiences the guys had in Normandy. But uh, I got below 1,200 feet before I could even look at the ground or start picking out a spot. And uh, on double toe, I was on a long toe and my toe partner was on a short toe. Uh, he was carrying that gun, or gun like that, and I was carrying the ammo and uh, the gun crew for it. So we had planned to land as closely together as possible so they could unite that load and get it into action. So. He started in and I started following him because we wanted to land just right behind the other. All of a sudden, here's a, a big power transmission line right down the middle of the LZ that nobody had told us anything about and none of the aerial photographs picked it up and showed it. Uh, he had to go under that thing. He had to pop his chute and go under it. And I guess it's like one of our normal transmission towers over here about probably 60 or 80 feet high, something like that. So he was getting pretty low when he went under that thing. Fortunately, I had not, I had not activated my drag chute. It gets your attention in a hurry, especially if there's any trees around that you're trying to dodge. But uh, 
the landing itself and this aircraft doing the slow approaches that Mike Murphy put into effect uh, was was fairly simple and easy. And uh, it's the reason that a lot of these gliders uh, got down with safe loads. Uh, I had enough altitude and speed that I got over it. But we still landed just like this. And uh, that picture right back there is the picture of the two gliders that landed. We, we were within about 50 yards of each other when we stopped. Neither of us had any damage. I had a few bullet holes in the tail of mine that I heard, but I had no structural damage. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. So when we went into Wessel and landed successfully, we were we got together at our assembly point, and we were given instructions to go to this particular crossroads and hold it until relieved. Uh, it was on the perimeter between the Rhine River and the town of Wessel, and we were to the northwest, north and northwest. So we formed up into our little infantry company and went down there, 200, 288 strong, Less, of course, a few that didn't get down safely. And uh, we dug in. And about, you, uh, you understand, as soon as we got behind the German lines, the te their tendency was to retreat back into Germany. And they had to retreat through our positions, which was the weakest positions because we didn't have any heavy, heavy equipment. So that night, uh, a company of... They said, uh, in the first place, they said, oh, you guys take this crossroads. There's nothing going to happen up there. This is where they're going to come through if they come through. And we're putting our special 75-millimeter cannon down here to stop them. You guys don't worry. So where do they come through? They come through our position. Exactly. Uh, about 12 o'clock at night, we hear this clanking and screaming and hollering and all that. And they come up to this crossroads where we're dug in. They have a... Uh, two or three advanced scouts that go down this road where we are. My, my co-pilot was across the road from me and he could see them. I was behind a hedge with another guy and he shot and killed this, this guy coming down. I'll, I'll show you his body right over there. I happened to bring back his burp gun and his helmet as a souvenir. But he, that was the advanced group of the whole company and they had three tanks and two uh, uh, two ACAC guns that they were pulling, they were mobile guns. And they attacked us in force. We had probably uh, 
with the four squadrons, we probably had a force of about 250 men left at that time. And about a fourth of them were right on the crossroads. Well, I was dug in by a little two-story house. They fired a shell through it and set it on fire. There was a German family in there, an older man and wife, his daughter who was pregnant, and a child. This house started burning from the top down. <coughs> During all this action, we had to get them out of that house and move them down to another German quarters down the road for safety purposes. That went on, and all the lead going around there, you could, you were afraid to stick your head up out of a foxhole. It was, he glider pilots are trigger, ha trigger happy, one thing. We had a lot of ammunition, and we didn't want to have to carry it back to France. So we stopped those guys cold. We didn't have, uh, we had one of our glider pilots who had a bazooka. He knocked out one of the, disabled one of the tanks and they decided to pull back and retreat, which they did. And um, the next morning, I don't know how many casualties were there. We didn't have a single casualty in our outfit because we were dug in that well. And it was a miracle that it happened that way. But they, they lost about, I don't know that, that Stars and Stripes article I gave you might give you the casualties, I'm not sure. But I'm sure they lost close to 50 or 60 people out of there. There were supposed to be a, a company of equal, equal strength with us, uh, you know, close to 200 or better. So th that was what happened. We, we did our job for the Airborne, and uh, 50 years, uh, our commanding officer got the Silver Star for that. 50 years later, well, three or four years ago, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a grateful Air Force awarded us all the Bronze Star and three of our other members with Silver Stars for the action at Burp Gun Corner. And the unique thing about it is this, this is an Air Force group. They're not supposed to be a combat ground unit. This is an Air Force group. The only time in Air Force history that such a group has been formed, all officers engage in actual combat with an enemy and, and survive as well as we did. The next day we helped the Germans dig trenches to bury their dead out there. And I later learned from a, a friendship I've developed with a resident of that area that they, they, uh, they disinterred those guys and buried them in a, in a national cemetery in Germany. One of the lesser known contributions of the heroic glider pilots were the flights behind enemy lines during the Battle of the Bulge. Well, one reason it was very important was because of supplies, gasoline, and, uh, and medical personnel. Uh, the, the MASH hospital unit that was taking care of the airborne was captured uh, about the 18th or 19th of December of 1944 in Bastogne. The Germans captured it and moved them off. So they had, no, they had nothing other than just medics, enlisted medics, who were technicians, to treat the wounded. And they had a they had a heck of a lot of wounded. So they called they uh, they called on a troop carrier to send a glider in with a volunteer medical team. Uh, this was done on uh, December the 26th. One of our members, Corky Corwin, and uh, another fellow volunteered for the mission. This first mission was flown on December the 26th because the weather had been horrible. But they were desperate for medical attention, so they flew this crew in. The day prior to that, on December the 25th, one doctor had been flown in with an L-5, a light aircraft. That was the only doctor they had on the premise until these got this, this, this team came in by glider. 
Now, later that same day, we flew in 10 lighters with ammo and gasoline because the, the tanks were out of gas and they were getting low on ammunition. So those guys went in and they, they had a pretty good, most of them survived. They didn't, they didn't get shot down. It was a surprise to the Germans that they'd come in that, that late. This was about a four o'clock in the afternoon and it was starting to get dark. The next day they had a, uh, they had a uh, 50 glider mission committed to go in on December the 27th. And this was flown by the uh, 439th and 440th troop carrier groups. Uh, I know the commander of the 439th very well, and he was in charge of this mission. The 50 gliders that were set up were set up to go in with one pilot, no co-pilot. So I asked him why he made this decision. He said, well, these gliders had no personnel. They were all loaded with high explosive ammunition or gasoline. He said, I knew if they got one hit, the glider was gone. He said, I was not going to risk two glider pilots when one could get the job done. So that was the reason. There was no other personnel in the glider other than the two pilots. So they flew the stuff in that enabled the 101st to survive. And Patton was... I think we arrived that same day in late afternoon, but they brought in the the uh, ammunition and gasoline that was needed. Now there was about uh, about ten or fifteen of those gliders on the end of the train were held up from taking off from the from the base in France because they found that the loads were not properly tied down. So this large group is, is ahead of them, and here they are taking off trying to catch up. Well, the, the, first, the first group, the Germans pretty well zeroed in on them, and most of them went through okay, but they were sitting there waiting for this second group, and they just slaughtered that. The 440th, 440th troop carrier group lost more planes and, and pilots in that one mission than they did in all other missions in World War II in Europe. That's how serious it was. Most of the planes never made it back. They crashed where they were or they crashed en route back to their base. With losses of this magnitude, it took a special man to be a glider pilot. We had a bunch of guys, if you asked for a volunteer, they'd volunteer before they knew what it was. They were that kind of people. Uh, it was the most unique group of people I was ever associated with, and I coached and taught school before I went to work with Shell Oil Company, and I was utterly amazed at some of the characters I ran across when I got into the glider program. You talk about individuals and individualism, they were the, they were the up. Well, our motto, I mean, our, our guardian angel was Bugs Bunny. They were sassy. I don't know how many times they got chewed out for not saluting a superior officer. We didn't believe in saluting. <laughs> and it, I don't know, it, it was, it was, it was, a, it was really something to be around these guys. But, but they never backed off from volunteering for anything. Uh, Corky and his co-pilot vol volunteered for that first mission with the medics. The 10, the 10 glider pilots that, that went in following him, all volunteers. The 50, the next day, they were told they weren't going to have co-pilots and told why. And they all still volunteered and went in on the mission. They never looked back. That was the, that I think was our, 
password, I guess. Uh, never looked back, and we never did. And that's not that we were any different from any other group in that World War II with submariners and people like that, but that was our own particular thing, and we did it. Other glider veterans had different experiences. Leo Cordier participated in six combat landings, each more harrowing than the last. I always wanted to fly. Uh, I enlisted in the infantry to get the years training over with. That was required uh, prior to uh, entering the war on December 7, 1941. Uh, when war broke out and we entered, uh, I requested transfer to the old Army Air Corps and was accepted. And leaving the infantry, uh, I started my career in, in the old Army Air Corps. I found out that they were looking for glider pilots. Uh, uh, the new program had started, and uh, I was very much interested. Always wanted to fly, and uh, it was one way of doing it. Uh, I was always interested in gliders. Uh, I was accepted for the training, and that started it off. Uh, we know we would be with the airborne uh, troops, the paratroopers essentially, and uh, had no idea what uh, it would entail. I enjoyed flying the thing after a, a few uh, practice flights and uh, uh, it was a little scary when you encounter the prop washer of the tow plane. The most important thing was to stay out of the prop washer as you were being towed and uh, if you got above the prop washer you could enjoy a pretty smooth flight. You encountered the prop wash, as I said, in the, in the turns, and uh, uh, that uh, was a little uncomfortable. But uh, you got used to that after a while. Once the all-too-brief training was completed, it was time for his first mission, flying behind enemy lines on D-Day. The weather was rather rainy at the time we entered the glider. It uh, rained intermittently uh, on D-Day. We were supposed to go in June 5th, but the weather was bad. They postponed it to June 6th. The takeoff went quite well. Uh, it took us about 30 minutes to assemble. Uh, the formation was 20, contained 26 gliders. Uh, 18 horses and uh, eight CG4As. I was tail end Charlie, number 26, in a CG4A. It was approximately 6, 6 p.m. in the evening. Uh, we were the first day daylight mission. The uh, code name was Elmira, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And uh, the formation as I mentioned, took about a half hour. Then we headed for the southeastern coast of England. Our first checkpoint was the Isle of Wight. Our altitude at the time was 700 feet. We could see the people coming out of the workshops and the homes waving to us on our way through. And uh, at uh, the checkpoint, the Isle of Wight, we headed out over the channel. We were laughing and joking, had a lot of confidence in us. I looked back at the 
the other one troopers to see if they were okay, and they nodded back. Uh, they were scared. We were scared too, but at least we were busy flying the, the aircraft to make sure the rope was taut, didn't get loose, so we wouldn't have any problems with it snapping. We flew directly over the battleship Texas and it was firing their big guns toward the Utah Beach coast and we could actually see the shells dis disappearing into the haze and the heavy smoke uh, mm. at the beach. Uh, we flew on for about another two miles and then we encountered the greatest sight that I can imagine. Uh, it was the invasion fleet the ships shuttling back and forth, and the greatest sight I ever occurred in my entire life was the invasion fleet, seeing the invasion fleet from the greenhouse nose of the, of the glider. Hmm. As we approached uh, Utah Beach, we made a left turn about a mile offshore and then flew parallel to the beach, and then made a final right-hand turn heading toward the shore. That was our initial point. And from then on, we were to go straight in eight miles from the initial point. At that time, the small arms fires started up at us, the flak started to come up, and the, the wings rocked and shuddered from the concussions, and we quickly realized this, this wasn't another training mission. As we headed in, the, the fire became more intense, and we could hear the bullets, the small arms fire ricocheting off the metal tubing of the glider mm. and some hitting the jeep. But we made it through. Uh, by that time, we were, our altitude was 1,500 feet and really too high uh, for us to make a very quick, fast landing. We were supposed to go in at 500 feet where we could make uh, one turn or two and then get in as soon as we possibly could. But at 1,500 feet when we released, we were sitting ducks. They could really get us with, a, with small arms, arms fire. I was pretty well protected. I had sandbags under the seat. We had flak suits on, and uh, that helped us uh, from the small arms fire. Uh, over the landing zone, uh, the other guys were flying every which way, and there was danger of uh, mid-air collision. Uh, one glider was coming right at us, and uh, luckily I spotted it, and we dove, and they whooshed by about four feet above us that close. I recognized the pilot, poor guy who later on got killed on a hollow mission, but uh, I did recognize him uh, when he whooshed by in Normandy. Uh, we could see the uh, Germans firing at us uh, on the ground uh, at the altitude of approximately a thousand feet. Uh, we made an approach to a little clearing that didn't have Rommel's asparagus, the light obstacle poles that General Rommel thought of uh, for his uh, uh, opposition to glider landings. Uh, we spotted a field with a couple horses in, and we knew the, there wasn't any mines in the field and headed for that. Uh, we made a, a big circle of left-hand uh, pattern and made the approach uh, to the uh, 
small field that we had picked out that had the horses and uh, we uh, planned on using the rest of the chute but uh, at 500 feet it was an operative we went to clear the trees uh, we were a little too high and we had to uh, dive toward the ground in order to make it otherwise we'd have crashed directly into the trees we got on the ground applied full brakes put the glider up on the skids and about 60 miles an hour we plowed right into the embankment where the hedgerows were and uh, I tried to cock the uh, glider to the right so the wing would hit first but to absorb up some of the shock but uh, uh, there's no luck there we just slid directly into the embankment uh, my feet punched through the nose of the glider the uh, control column came back and hit me in the face. Fortunately, I had the, uh, the heavy uh, fog piercing goggles on and, and that helped uh, uh, the impact. Uh, I was kind of dazed. Uh, the co-pilot was okay. The lieutenant from the 82nd sitting in a Jeep had a broken leg and the other fellow uh, was a bit dazed, but okay. Uh, we noticed on the other side of the embankment, there's little activity, and there was a couple German soldiers there that could have really knocked us off, but they were more scared than we were and took off. Uh, we got out of the glider and, and waited a while. We were, were able to uh, get all the equipment and headed toward our assembly point near the town of St. Mary Gleese, uh, which was the first town captured in Normandy. On the way through, we had to encounter sniper fire and uh, happened to see some of the French civilians that had been picked up and were loaded onto a flat big truck uh, stacked like cordwood. Uh, that was quite a sight, one of the first sights we encountered. Uh, we were able to make it back to the uh, assembly point uh, and uh, stayed there for quite a while until they started bracketing us with the mortar fire. I had a Thompson submachine gun. Uh, that helped as a scale weapon. If you sh fired that at, that at them, that was very effective. We uh, got our Jeep uh, out without too much difficulty and, and carried all the, the equipment on the Jeep. And, I think we had a total of about uh, 10 personnel by the time we got to our assembly point near St. Mary Glees. Uh, that night, uh, as I mentioned, we dug into this, this farmhouse and the next morning we assembled and, and uh, after encountering quite a bit of snap, uh, sniper fire, we. Uh, was assigned to take prisoners back to Utah Beach. So we had about 200 prisoners we marched back to uh, Utah Beach. On the way back, we were being bracketed by mortar fire, which was quite effective. One fellow was hit, seriously wounded, and, and another one was killed as we approached the, the Utah Beach area. 
Well, we were one lucky bunch, uh, most of the, if, if you survive one mission, you're doing well, <laughs> I'm sure of that. How the heck I got through all those, it's beyond me. I think back, how the hell did I get out of that, you know? Poitier's next mission would take him into Holland to secure a German-held bridge in Operation Market Garden, made famous by the motion picture, A Bridge Too Far. On Market Garden, we, by that time, we know pretty well much to expect if we had gone into either Normandy or southern France or both. In my case, it was both, so I was becoming quite seasoned and knew what to expect. Uh, on Market Garden, we took off from England and uh, flew in pretty adverse weather conditions. We flew across the North Sea. Some of the uh, cereals flew south of us across the channel, then up into Holland. But we flew across the southern part of the North, North Sea. The weather was very bad, and some of the flights had to be postponed. But we, we took off on the 17th and encountered uh, uh, heavy fog and clouds over the North Sea, and we had to fly blind quite a few areas where you couldn't see the tow ship and that was pretty scary because you know if that rope was left to dangle and the tow ship surged forward it could snap and we'd go down into the North Sea and that happened to quite a few of the, the gliders that were being towed uh, through that overcast. Fortunately we got through and we rode above it way high sitting ducks up there of the German fighters had gotten through. They could have could really uh, done a job on us. But we made it over the LC. Uh, our landing zone was uh, uh, several miles north of the city of Eindhoven, a little town of Zahn. That was the first bridge. The, the 101st Airborne Division, we were carrying in elements uh, of the 101st, was assigned to taking that bridge. Uh, it was taken, incidentally. Uh, it wasn't the bridge too far. That was uh, the, the British's responsibility up at Arnhem. The landing zone was a big expanse of open metal, ideal f for glider landing. As we encountered the landing zone, as we approached the landing zone, the uh, anti-aircraft fire became very intense. It was so intense that a couple of the tow ships in the front of the formation was shot down and knew we, we knew we were in for trouble. The uh, flak was bursting all around us. Uh, flew another maybe a mile or so and all of a sudden my glider ballooned up and I realized it had been hit. So I immediately cut off. Uh, so having part of the teal was shot off and I didn't have full elevator control. So it cut off and made a left turn. Uh, there's plenty of room down below. Uh, by the time I get down to 1,500 feet, anti-aircraft fire, a 20 millimeter, I couldn't tell what it was, was trace of fire that came up and followed me all the way down to the point where we landed. Uh, the fire was perhaps maybe three or four feet ahead of the nose of the glider. If they backed up a bit, or if I went forward a bit, we'd have been blown to smithereens. Uh, again, I was carrying a Jeep uh, one airborne 
sergeant in the jeep and one airborne 101st first lieutenant working the spoilers for me in the co-pilot seat and I was hoping he'd let go of the spoilers when I told him to release because he could have been very well frozen to that bar you know being fired upon and going in with a disabled uh, glider uh, fortunately he, he released when I told him to and uh, I was able to leveled out a little bit but we're very fast we hit the ground I, I would say about maybe 90 miles an hour way, way too fast and uh, fortunately the ground was soft sandy and we plowed in uh, again we probably stopped in about 60 or 70 feet and we were completely covered with dirt and sand and dust in the meantime they're still firing at us and how we get out of the glider to this day I don't recall just how we got out of that glider but the three of us got out of the glider and fortunately there was members of the 101st Airborne in a ditch to the east side of us and they hollered and we ran in the right direction and the machine gun fire was so intense the dirt was blowing all all up around us some of it hitting us hitting us in the face faces and we were able to dive into the ditch where the paratroopers were and we laid there exhausted about a half hour I, I doubt if I could speak at all for another another half hour or so we were very fortunate on that one being hit and then being under heavy fire as we got out of the glider uh, the paratroopers were able to wipe this company out it was quite substantial and we were able to get back maybe a couple hours later to load the jeep and and uh, supplies that were carrying in and we were there for about uh, three days, if I call correctly. We ran into some of the British uh, troopers that had landed in our area. They should have been north of us, but they landed in our area. We were out supplies, had no food, and I, re I recall he says, "There's some mushrooms over there." This British sergeant said, "I know, I know they're good," so we. Cooked them up. <laughs> we had the little uh, burners, you know, and uh, they tasted good. Tasted like steak. So at least we weren't starving until we could get some supplies to us. Uh, we heard that they were going to drop anti-personnel mines uh, in the area, and those were mines that had just about everything in them—nails, uh, glass, wire, and everything—that spread all over. Uh, the area hoping that they could hit some of the American soldiers, Allied soldiers, with the British being with us. And uh, we dug in. I think I dug uh, a foxhole about 10, ten feet deep <laughs> if a bomb dropped near, and I'm sure we, we would have been buried alive, but uh, fortunately we, we didn't encounter any of the uh, bombing of that sort. We fought along with the uh, paratroopers for several days, and then when things quieted down, we escorted more prisoners back, back into Belgium. And we finally made our way to Brussels, Brussels before we were ferried back to, to England in case they didn't need, needed us for another mission. Our area, the, uh, the battle market garden, was, market garden was successful. Of course, the British, uh, up near the bridge at Arnhem, they bridged too far. Uh, it was made into the movie. They they went in with 10,000 troops and only 2,000 got out. 
uh, get out there. Uh, what uh, happened, there was a German Panzer Division, which our intelligence didn't pick up, the Allied intelligence didn't pick up, pick up although they were warned. And uh, that's what happened to the British. They encountered the Panzer Division that was regrouping on the uh, east side of the Rhine. The war would have ended six weeks earlier if uh, they had captured the bridge at Arnhem, then our troops could have gone down to the German plane on the uh, east side of the Rhine River. Then, in March of 1945, Cordier flew his final and most harrowing mission, Operation Varsity. My mission was to, uh, to, uh, com uh, to command a combat glider flying control team. There's two gliders made up of uh, a jeep, and the second one with a, with a trailer with the, the high-powered radio and, and communications equipment in it. Uh, job was to take over airfields that we captured and set up flying control and operations. Uh, the first mission we were used on uh, was the varsity mission. As such, I was sent on detached service to the 440th troop carry group that was located in Orleans, France. And the reason for that was they wanted us up front. The 440th is one of the first groups to get in. They wanted that radio equipment in early so we could com communicate back to non-troop carrier headquarters uh, near Paris. Uh, that went well. Uh, the takeoff did. Uh, it took a total of four hours to pass one given a point. That was the biggest one-day mission for gliders during the war. Uh, the Holland mission was bigger, but that was spread out over a period of, uh, of several days. When we crossed the Rhine, we encountered heavy smoke. They had laid a smoke screen to cover the, uh, the operations, the ground operations crossing the Rhine. Uh, it was so 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 thick, we, we couldn't see. We were practically flying blind. And the flashes of anti-aircraft fire was, was tremendous, and they were all around us. And it's one that uh, a lot of us didn't get hit. Uh, we headed in on an on a easterly uh, course, and when we cut off, uh, we were high again, too high. Uh, maybe about 1,500 feet. We should have been down around 500. We made a, a left turn. Actually, it was a 270-degree turn, and we were headed south for the landing. As we swung around 270 degrees, we could get glimpses of the ground through the smoke. And there was two uh, big towers that uh, had wires that were strung across them, but they were caught because they knew we were coming in with the gliders in that area. Uh, I believe I was the first glider in because there's no one ahead of me. Uh, even though there was several gliders ahead of me in the formation, I cut short and got closer in and consequently was ahead of them. Uh, for some reason, why we didn't get shot down, because there was a battery of 88 millimeter, uh, millimeter German guns in an orchard off to the east side of us as we approached the landing zone. Uh, they were firing at us. Uh, we got down okay. I deliberately 
nose the glider through two barbed wire fences to slow us down again. We welcome anything like that uh, to slow us down and uh, was able to, to, to uh, stop the glider. It was a three-point landing. We didn't have to put it up on the skids. The, the uh, barbed wire fences slowed us down a bit. Coming into landing at, at Varsity, um, we got down okay. Uh, we were on a lot of small arms fire. We managed to get out of the glider. As a matter of fact, it's in the pilot, myself and the co-pilot. Uh, we got out of the glider. We also had a sergeant, a communications sergeant, that was uh, sitting in our jeep. And we got out okay. I said, let's get under the embankment. We went around and the glider got under a little shallow embankment. And all hell was breaking loose. The noise was terrific. The 88s firing at us, the, the uh, the uh, small arms fire that, that was going on between our paratroopers that had landed earlier, just ahead of us, and, and the Germans. Uh, I think they fired one shot that went over the glider and landed right in the middle of a group of uh, paratroopers. They were on the west side of, of the area where we landed, and they just disappeared. I believe they were just blown out, to, blown to smithereens. Uh, when they had, uh, we had to wait for about a half hour before we could move, and then things quieted down. Our paratroopers attacked the uh, orchard area where the 88s were and uh, uh, controlled that area, and we were able to unload our jeep. Uh, we found a spot in the woods where we set up our radio equipment and started communicating, communicating with. Uh, with the 9th Troop Carrier Headquarters back in Paris. We did have a glider pilot relay station on the east bank of the Rhine that relayed our signals back to headquarters. That was controlled by a glider pilot, too. Um, it worked out quite well. I was very, very fortunate, and again, I attribute a lot to the, to the faith I have in the good Lord. In my case, he got me through all these dangerous situations and to this day I don't don't know how I made it I really really don't accept the good graces of the, the Lord watching over me um, I know just a statement to make everything look confusing and we didn't think how it was how well it was gonna work out but uh, in the final analysis uh, the use of the gliders, uh, I thought, was uh, very successful. It enabled us to get the heavy equipment in, to get uh, self-contained equipment, whereas if we dropped them by chute, there was, for instance, the pack howitzer had several pieces, they would be spread over enemy territory, whereas if they left it intact and sent the, the, the crew along with a gun, we, we could have it, even if the crew got killed, the gun was probably still usable and other people could use it. So that, that uh, was important because uh, uh, gliders could carry this equipment in. I recall going back to, uh, to uh, normally the, the 50th anniversary of D-Day and uh, going through the cemetery at Colville-Samur, Omaha Beach, and uh, look, looking among the crosses, I spotted two of the glider pilots that were buried there, along with General Pratt, the first uh, general that was killed in Colonel Murphy's uh, glider on D-Day. Uh, 
I looked down and said, well, that could have been me. Then again, you wonder. Uh, that was re remarkable going back the 50th anniversary. There's about 50,000 people uh, there, and there was an eerie silence about the area. And uh, what impressed me was seeing at a little shrine there in the middle of the cemetery saying that they shall be forever young. And that's how you remember these young people and some of your buddies that were killed and that were interred there. Uh, that's the hardest part to think about all the young people that uh, were cut short and uh, started their lives, the prime of their lives. And that that's what bothers me if so many people don't appreciate what was done in World War II. But his nation does remember and appreciate his service and that of all the brave men who flew in the Glider Corps. And now, we still think back and marvel at the bravery of the men who flew the original stealth airplanes, the gliders of World War II. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions Incorporated in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. Produced by David Benson. Written by Rod Pyle. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated. Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.